Hello, and welcome to another episode of SBCC Vaquero Voices. Um, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Akil Hill, and today's guest, Rocco Constantino, SBCC Athletic Director. Uh, how's it going, Rocco? Everything good? Good, great. Thanks for having me on, Hong. Thanks for uh, having me, Akil. I listened to your first podcast, The Pilot. It was great, so I'm, I'm really happy to, to be asked to be on and, and talk some uh, Sports, pop culture, news, whatever, food, whatever you guys want. Yeah, we were and and uh, students in particular. But uh, the timing is perfect because today is opening day, so mm-hmm. we're all uh, invested in in professional sports as well as uh, campus sports. And uh, you know, basketball will be starting up soon, but today is baseball's day, and uh, we all three of us we rep different teams, right? So I'm an Angels fan. Akil, you are. Um, Evil, evil empire. I'm evil all, all the way, all the way through and through, through and through. And, and Rocco, you're on the other side of town in New York, right? Yeah, he's I'm a Mets tri- fan. He's in the AAA Mets, you know. <laughs> well, I was gonna say we we uh, the Mets, Angels, and Yankees all have pretty pretty high expectations for the year. At least I had high expectations. They Mets played the Yankees a couple days ago, and it was freaking. Bombs over the Bronx, and it, yeah. uh, the Mets got beat up a little bit. I think that the Yankees' offense is just that good. They're pretty locked in this year, so it's going to be yeah, – especially in a shortened season, it'll be tough to kind of gain ground on a team like that. That's how I feel about the Astros in my division. So, Yeah. 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 Yankees always usually have good bats. It's always their issues, always pitching. You know, I mean, that's what's kind of been um, always their Achilles heel and stuff. So – uh, like when they went out and, and signed uh, Stanton, I was like, we don't need another bat. That's too many strikeouts between him and Judge. Uh, we need arms. So I was, I'm happy that they, got, they went and got Cole in the offseason. And um, we'll see how it, it all plays out, you know. Yeah, and yeah. they're this, you know, in this such a short season like this, I, you know, the pitching I think is going to be so important and having a strong bullpen, which the Yankees do. Yeah. So it's just, you know, they have seem like they have a good complete team and, They'll be tough to beat, that's for sure. Now, since they don't have cameras in Houston, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and MLB is doing some interesting things. They're like, you know, they're allowing you to upload your photo to be in the stands. They're, they're allowing you to use an app to boo or applaud, and they will pipe in the appropriate crowd. Now. So, theoretically, you could still boo the Astros if you are so inclined. You just have to pony up, you know, for the ticket to be in the right. stands and, and add the crowd noise. But, but it is some pretty unique things, you know, like having to adjust to these, to the, to the COVID times we're living in. And that kind of segues into our, uh, our news and events section, SBCC news. Um, the big, the big thing here. And, and what, one of the reasons we're here to talk to you today, Rocco is uh, the CCCAC California community college athletic association. Yeah. 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 CCCAA. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have announced that uh, they are uh, they're they're moving all their sports to spring. Is that is that what it is? Yeah, that's what it is. They they essentially took the spring twenty twenty one semester, um, extended the athletic calendar by about six weeks, and then divided that in half. So window one runs from first practice January eighteenth to April tenth, and that's going to be where all the fall sports play. And then window two practice starts March twenty seventh and runs to June 23rd, and that's where all the spring sports will play. So it's, it's going to be tough to manage, but, um, but we're, we're working our best on, on how to do that safely. And, and this was decided, what, a couple of weeks ago, so the college is still kind of figuring things out and working things out, but this is completely unprecedented, right? I don't think there's any, like, this has never happened before, I don't think. 
Yeah, it never happened before where they had to move an entire season like this. Uh, the decision came down July 10th from the 3C2A, um, and we had been planning for months um, on the athletic director level, on the state level, and our uh, athletic department has been meeting every single Monday for two hours um, since we shut down. And it's pretty much been, you know, at first it was dealing with the shutdown, and then we turned our attention to how can we safely – get our students back to um, uh, competition and ac academics and athletics safely um, whenever the 3C2A came down with their plan. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of, you know, sports, a lot of the games are the most, you know, the things that people think about the most, but the back end stuff takes up most of your time, I imagine, where the actual playing of the game is almost like the last piece. So it's like, it's like the last mile, almost, you know, it's the, the hours and the days and the weeks and the months you put in to lead up to that. And now to, to have that on the back end logistics side, as well as practice, getting your, mm -hmm. getting the kids in shape, keeping them, you know, getting them, keeping them right academically. It's just a lot to cram into one semester. So it's, I can imagine it's, there's just a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's a great point too. Um, it's, you know, we, we see what we see or what fancy are the athletic competitions. You know, we, we see the scores, we read the, the website, but what they don't see is all the academic stuff that goes into it and all the preparation. So we, we get a student, uh, it's an SBC student, just like any non-athlete or, or somebody that's involved in something else. And we are supporting them from the time they get here, whether it be July or August, um, straight through. And, you know, as we all work at SBCC and we all have a common goal to help our students get to the next step in life. We want to prepare them as best they could for what they want to do in life. So with our athletes, that's the way we view them. We get them in July, whether they're returners or new, and we put them on a path academically to go on to the next step. Um, and then athletics happens to be a part of that that allows for structure, discipline, um, exposure, and things like that. And we have a great success rate of sending our athletes on to the next steps in their lives, whether it's a four-year school to compete or a four-year school just for academics or some like to go to work right after. Whatever they want to do, we custom their path. Um, so now it's that whole path has to be adjusted to fit into the COVID times, which is difficult. It's not just the sports of it. And, you know, also, too, um, you know, one of the things that I do is I actually look at, uh, I determine the athletic eligibility for each student, right? And so, um, you know, look, thinking about the thought of processing football, which there's usually roughly around 80 guys, 90 guys, um, baseball around 80, 90 guys, and people don't really pay note to this sport, but their numbers continuously go up, and that's soccer, men's soccer that's like around like 50 guys all of that is going to have to be fit into you know um, a smaller window and so it's a lot on the back end along with you know a triple c double a standards of you know gpa units um so it's it's going to be a, he a heavy lift um come spring um so but i'm a, but we do have people you know we have like our academic counselor joanne graham she does an amazing job um, the coaches, um, Ellen, the whole P, uh, PE department um, definitely um, is out on the front of a lot of things. So it's going to be a lot, but I think we'll be able to, to manage it. Yeah, and that's definitely where the student focus nature of SBCC really, really will shine because we, you know, we are dedicated and focused and committed to the students and, and helping them grow. But 
yeah, it's it's a big it's a big mountain to climb, and but I'm sure we'll you know we'll all get there somehow, some way. Are, are they practicing right now? There's no summer practice, right? Yeah, no summer practice. We're not allowing any contact with students whatsoever. Um, the only athletic competition that's going on right now um, at any of our facilities is the Santa Barbara Foresters baseball team, which is an out-of-area collegiate summer baseball team. Best one in the country, actually. Oh, yeah, but, champions. Um, yeah. yeah, they're great. So, so nothing at SBCC. No practices, no weight rooms, just Zoom meetings. Um, and that's, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything at least until the start of the um, fall semester if things stay the way they are. And then, uh, Rocco, can you – I know that there's been some coaching uh, changes and stuff, so do you want to maybe elaborate a little bit on that too as well? Like yeah, what? we've yeah, – go ahead. No, good. Uh, yeah, we had um, – we have 20 sports in uh, at City College. Uh, we added beach volleyball a couple of years ago, and that was our 20th sport. It's one of the biggest departments in the state. Um, and we have seven teams that have new coaching situations this year. So we had a couple of coaches uh, take advantage of the early retirement at City College. Um, we had a couple um, other part-time coaches uh, receive full-time jobs, so they weren't able to de dedicate time. So, yeah, so this year we have new coaches for men's and women's cross-country, men's and women's golf, um, men's volleyball, uh, softball, and um, I think that's it. Uh, yeah, men's – Oh, and men's basketball too. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of changes, which is also a level of complexity to, to doing all this. And um, so we're trying to scramble and, and get all this stuff in place um, with new coaches. So um, the good part is we had so many qualified assistant coaches already at the school um, that we were able to fill some of those positions with assistant coaches. So they already know the lay of the land a little bit. Um, so I'll make things a little bit easier. And there's no like system changes in terms of like offensive philosophy, defensive philosophies. They're not coming in with a whole new game plan, so to speak, are they? Or uh, some sports, yes. Some sports, no. Probably different. Uh, each one's a different case. I know um, in track and field, we're going to have a different recruiting uh, philosophy. Um, we hired Don Willis, who was our assistant football coach, uh, former NFL player, uh, played ten years in the NFL, but he was also a Division One track and field athlete. Uh, so real excited about that. And he's, he's really going to go out. He has a lot of connections in the local community for, uh, for track and field that we hope he's going to use. Because that's another team. I, I don't mean to break the bad news to Akil, but those numbers might be going up. And there's, there's more, <laughs> uh, more eligibility packets that we're going to be processing with, with that. But, just, bring, um, just keep continue bringing the swag, Rocco, and then I'll be good. <laughs> the hats, the sweater, 2X right yeah. here. 2X oh, right here. here. 2X. All right. I got you. Uh, no, it's exciting. I mean, some sports here, and we're getting some new blood in there, and um, and we're excited to see what we could do. We've we've had a lot of success, and we're going to see if we could take that next step. Yeah, and and as always, students, student athletes, and the, the folks that are here will always come first, and that's one of the great parts about coming to SBCC and working for SBCC. Is you get that's a great. On... Yeah, I was going to say that's a great point too, because um, you know that was one of the reasons why we felt so comfortable elevating some of these assistant coaches to head coaching positions. Um, aside, it's not just that they know the lay of the land and know their sport, but their student athletes really enjoyed working with them. Um, each assistant that we elevated 
has a tremendous rapport with students, um, and not just as athletes, but they also serve as academic mentors, um, tutors, and things of that nature. They really buy into that whole approach of, of developing the student and um, preparing them for the next step in life. Yeah. You know, I'm from Santa Barbara and it's, um, you know, I'm just gonna, you know, in Santa Barbara high school, shout out to SBHS. Uh, but, um, it's also a good time to be a, um, a student athlete. You know, I mean, you can, uh, graduate from your high school and, and come to city college for the first two years under the promise and get your textbooks. Mm -hmm. And, and then you can, um, continue to transfer on and then compete at a high level, um, at Santa Barbara city college. And, and move on. I know our programs have done an amazing job of transferring local high school talent onto D1 schools and other mm -hmm. schools as well. So, you know, um, you know, we know that in light of COVID, it's 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 a definitely a game changer. But also, it's always good to know that Santa Barbara uh, is an an option and a, a legit option. You know, absolutely. So uh, with, that, with that being said, um, we're going to move on to the next section, which is food. Um, hope you came prepared, Rocco. <laughs> uh, I did. I did. I'm good. Right. Hey, listen, Rocco's always prepared. I, I, called him, <laughs> I called him earlier in the week. I caught my man driving in his Jeep, eating an In-N-Out burger. So, honestly, oh. so, so Rocco, you better have something good for oh, us, man. You better it, have I something good it. for us. I, I oh, haven't right. been in and out since since the stay-at-home started, so it's been about three, four months, and I'm, I'm fiending, man. I, I'll even eat the fries at this point. You know, I'm normally, I'm normally a lightly well guy, but I'll, just, I'll take them however. You can just put them raw. I'll take, oh, the double-double. Double-double <laughs> grilled and raw animal style. I like I just grilled yeah, and raw. Onions. Yeah. It's great. I was just, I was back East uh, visiting family and I had, I had come back and then my car went right in the shop uh, that next day to get some work done. And when Akil called me, I literally, I picked it up in Goleta and was driving back towards Santa Barbara and saw that in and out and just, my car just veered off that way. I'm like, it's been too long. I got to have that. that in and out. Oh yeah. It went on so autopilot. It <laughs> started driving for you. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, everyone's always talking about Shake Shack, Five Guys. The thing to me in and out yeah. is the value and the quality. The, Absolutely, the, the price you can't beat the price. Shake Shack will run you fifteen bucks for a combo, mm -hmm. and, and even Five Guys, if you start loading it up, it, it starts adding up. I'm and not a fan of Five Guys. Uh, I, I do like Five Guys, but it's too yeah, expensive. Yeah, I can see that. Little little greasy for my liking too, but I, I kind of I like I do like the Five Guys fries better than the uh, than the In and Out fries. Yeah, I, I like the habit because I'm a shredded lettuce guy, uh, but mm. yeah. Mm. Nice. Habit's good too. Yeah. All right. So you want to yeah, leave so us off, Rocco? Was that your choice? In and out? <laughs> <laughs> it's an uh, ad-libbed conversation. Now, yeah. when, when Akil was talking about food, I was, you know, um, but the thing that means the most to me with food is um, I'm Italian, obviously, here, and uh, Sunday dinner, Sunday macaroni dinner. Um, and that's my number one go-to thing. It's the way we were raised. It's part of our culture. It's a simple food. It's just macaroni and pasta and not, nothing too complex. But, um, but still, even being out here and being on my own, every Sunday I sit here and make my, my Sunday gravy and, um, and sit down and have a bowl of spaghetti and then keep my, my gravy for the week. Um, and it's a big Italian tradition, Sunday dinner. You see it it's stereotypical. It's in any mob movie you'll see. But yeah. that, that, 
that was real life. That's what I grew up with. And it's, you know, two o'clock on Sunday afternoon is when dinner is. It's a super early dinner. You go to your, um, you know, the matriarch in the family, you go to their house and you usually, their basement is set up like a, a lunch and common area. That's a, that's a tradition. And it's, you wake up at the crack of dawn and make gravy for six hours. Um, and, and um, that's always a debate too. Do you call it gravy? Do you call it sauce? People call uh -huh. it different thing, macaroni or pasta. So, you know, the real story, I, I always tell people with Italians when, when we talk, um, Southern Italy is the red sauce, the gravy that we call it gravy. Most people call it sauce. Uh, Northern Italy is like the Alfredo type of sauce. So my family is Southern Italy. They call it gravy. It's red sauce. And each, each branch of the family has their own different little tradition. So kind of when the Italians came over to immigrate to um, New Jersey, New York City, um, you know, they came over with nothing for the most part. They were pretty poor. They were plumbers, mason, masonry, um, and, and spaghetti, macaroni is cheap. Um, so, and, and it's filling, you know, you can feed a whole family with a box of spaghetti. So, um, you know, that became a tradition. And then I grew up with my family, spaghetti and meatballs every Sunday, and then two or three times a week, just easy to do. And, uh, but every single Sunday, no matter what, it was macaroni dinner at two o'clock, early dinner. And the you know, older people sit around, they have some Sambuca, coffee, espresso, you know, Italian pastries. Um, and it just brings back great memories. I could smell that, that setting. And, and it just was a full, almost like a giant family reunion every single Sunday. And, and the sauce gravy recipe is pretty, I mean, it's pretty unique to each family too. Everyone throws a little curveball in there, you know, here and there, right? So you got to probably some secret herbs and spices that you're not divulging to anybody when you're making your sauce. It is, you're, you're right. And it's, um, you know, my, my family and I grew up, um, there's a big debate among Italians. When you make your meatballs, do you mix um, pork and beef or is it just a beef meatball? And my family was just the beef and my father, Man, he made the best meatballs. They were just like perfect, um, you know, texture, size, everything. Um, and, you know, my mom, she, she's like 90% accurate. My dad has passed away. Um, hers are really good. I'll eat as many of them as, as I could, but you just, you can't nail down your specific recipe. And, and uh, so that's, we were just a gravy and meatball family. Some people throw sausage in there. Um, you know, any, any different kind of meat, rajol, things like that. And that's a tradition I can definitely get behind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, after, after uh, Corona leaves, oh, maybe 2021, I'm expecting some meatballs from you. <laughs> I mean, oh, man, my meatballs stink. I'll make them, but I'll try. I can't get them right. I've, I've had tutoring lessons from my, my family, and um, I just I can't get them right. Uh, but I, I do try my best. Um, I, my, my, my one aunt, she lived to be about, you know, 90. She died a few years ago. Um, she, her me making meatballs was a multi-day, um, multi-day test. What she would do is she, like old Italian woman, she would grow her fresh herbs in the garden. Um, she would take bread, um, let it become stale, break it up. She would make her own breadcrumbs basically. And then, wow. you know, soak it. And she had this whole process and it's, it's something that they, they took a lot of pride in. But I'll make macaroni for you. I eat my coach softball. 
we used to do a big 200 person fundraiser dinner and I used to make macaroni for the whole, whole group. So I'd be happy for that. I'm looking oh, forward to you. What about you, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I'm actually in a similar vein. I, I, I got a tooth removed uh, yesterday actually. So um, through some bad decisions made about 10, 15 years ago where I didn't think I needed to go to the dentist, <laughs> uh-huh. the, the invincibility of youth, I'll blame it on. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, maybe it's like I grew up poor, but no, my, my family has good teeth. So yeah, I lost tooth yesterday, but I was forced to eat uh, mostly soft foods, not much chewing. So I went back to a classic uh, kanji, which is a joke in our language. It's like porridge. It's basically rice and water as the basic and you boil it and it makes like this slurry and you just throw in whatever else you want. So my house, we most of the time and just a little bit of fish sauce to flavor the water and then you can throw whatever toppings in it. My favorite actually was the thousand year old egg. If you've ever heard of it, they call them century eggs. They're, they look disgusting and they probably yeah. smell disgusting, but they're actually pretty good. Um, but for me yesterday, I just took a little bit of, uh, yeah, cooked rice, water, some fish sauce, cracked an egg in it, and that was my dinner, and that was actually my lunch today as well. So it's one of those things where, like, you grow up you grow up a certain way and you're used to it, and, like, mm-hmm. it's a very simple dish, and it's probably not much nutritionally, but every bite is, like, so nostalgic and comforting that, like, it felt really good, and it made me want to buy, like, some of those century eggs even to throw them in there. But, uh, yeah, um, I don't know of any, very many restaurants in town where you can get it, China Pavilion might have it on their weekend dim sum menu, but it's it's so simple. It's not hard to make at home. You just cook rice. You, I mean, you can use chicken stock instead of water, but my mom was always using water. I mean, I do remember certain nights it was just, it was congee and peanuts was like a meal. You know, like when you had, a, like you're hungry and that's it. That's all we have in the house. And, and it got me by. Anytime I was sick, that's what my mom would make. Anytime there was anything really wrong with me, my mom would always be like, oh, you need less complex food, just something straight. Yeah. And it was yeah. always that, it was always that warm, comforting, like, you know, it felt, it felt really good. So it wasn't the best circumstances where I had to eat it again, but it was nice because even with the whole stay at home, I'm revisiting a lot of my family recipes and finding that, you know, they're really not that complicated. There's not that much to them, but they really hit the spot and it's nice to get back to that. That kind of reminds me, it sounds a little bit like a uh, Ochazuke, you know? Yes, um, it, it, it's very similar. The Japanese um, mm-hmm. rice and warm water and uh, almost like a porridge. Yeah. I had that uh, a couple of days ago in the morning for breakfast. Um, I think that's a common thing in the Japanese culture. I was born in Japan, mm-hmm. so I have, um, you know, some um, uh, Japanese food that I, I uh, lean towards, you know, and, and uh, some, but yeah, that's what it made me think about when you were talking about the porridge. Yeah, they're absolutely similar in some way. I don't know. I don't know where they diverge at a certain point, but yeah, rice and water for for people the working class is definitely kind of a go-to stomach filler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so add carb, add carb to something and stir. You know, full bellies. But the secret to me is like it's so simple, but it, it your family, the way that you're like your grandmother or your family has pre- prepared the food, it's hard to it's hard to do some of the simplistic food is, is the hardest food to get the taste and the flavor just right you know and and that's where it's like the little the little bit of practice and repetition and, and really put it in the work to kind of like, like people want to really get it down to a science so to speak and there is a lot more feel to it it's like the analytics versus watching the games <laughs> you know like analytics will only get you so far analytics will get you like 90 percent of the way there like you can you know the outcome but but that last 10 percent, that's where the magic is you know that's that secret yeah. sauce where you really got to like play the games, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta let things play out and, and how things naturally unfold. 
there's there is that beauty to it and that's really where the magic happens yeah so uh my my pick this week i i've been really trying to be with this you know the cases going up i've been really trying to be mindful of just being at home um Mm -hmm. and and enjoying um the time with my family and so i i've been in the kitchen a little bit more earlier in the week Uh, i did kind of like my take on a, a chicken pozole and uh i boiled i started off i boiled the chicken for a while and then I obviously I shredded it, put it back into the pot with the broth from the, the chicken. And I threw in some hominy, uh, cut up uh, some peppers, um, put, you know, and just made it, you know, kind of like a stew, you know, and, and let it simmer for like, you know, four or five hours and, uh, and uh, just got the radishes, the cabbage, the limes. Uh, the Mexican sour cream. Some people probably, you know, don't use sour cream, but I got the Mexican sour cream, which is my favorite sour cream, by the way. Um, I, I remember uh, we were having a potluck in, uh, in emissions and I was, I was like, uh, someone signed up for sour cream. I'm like, yo, had to pull them aside. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I know what you're talking. I'm like, I need for you to get the Mexican sour cream. It's kind of like the liquid creamy, mm-hmm. like, so uh, a little bit of that, I used a little bit of that. Um, and uh, that's what, that's what was my meal of the day. I still got some in the refrigerator. I'm waiting. I purposely let, let it sit for a couple of days. Cause you know, the reheats are always the, the best where the sauce is allowed to marinate and you throw it back on. So, you know, I'm going to get into that a little bit later tonight. I'm going to watch the Yankees uh, and the nationals. Um, and so that's, that's what my evening's going to, probably look look like but that was my dish um i think i rock and i are friends on facebook and stuff so i'll be i see it. yeah I, as you say i see that all the time i see uh i sorry to cut you off there but uh you you're posting pictures and i'll you know i'll, I'll notice the picture first and be like man where's the keel out eating tonight it's just, <laughs> so it's just something that you, you ate at home but you know you go all out and preparing those dishes it's pretty good to say looks professional Akil is the Yelp whisperer too. He's a great home cook, but also when I when I went to London last year, he was sending me restaurant recommendations like, "Yo, you gotta check this place out." And they were they were amazing. I was like, man, every time he's bad, he's bad a hundred sending Yelp recommendations for sure. I love I love Yelp, man. <laughs> we'll have to do an episode on on, on Yelp secrets with Akil because yeah, I I mean I try to look at only the photos and, and not listen to some of the reviews, but your science is probably probably more more legit than mine. It's the analyticals, Han. It's the analyticals. <laughs> Yelp, Yelp above replacement. Yeah, you don't yes. Wanna, you, need, you need the reviews from the people that are actually Yelping above replacement level. Yeah. Yeah. Jan told me he was going, uh, what was it, Britain? Was it England? England you were going? You were, you were, yeah, it was London. Yeah, it was London, right? London and Paris. So, uh, so he, he called me and I was like, okay. He, went, he was going to the arm calling in the bullpen. <laughs> I was like, here, I'll close it out for you. I'll close it out for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, That's fish great. and chips. A fish and chips place you recommended was really good. Oh man. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I was sitting here talking all about Italian food, and I'm right at my desk, I got a bag. These are tadals. I don't know if you guys ever had them before. Oh. Uh, Italian after dinner. Hard to even explain what they are. Kind of like consistency of a hard pretzel, but with a glaze and fennel seeds. And um, anytime I go back to visit. You know, I, I leave some room in my bag and I bring back, you know, five or six bags of tadals because you can't get them out here. 
and these Rassiope Tadals from Bloomfield, New Jersey. They are, soak are up the salt. Number one. Yeah. Nah, these are after after dinner things, and and you'll break your teeth on them, but. Uh, <laughs> so are you? They're are you? A, good. Are you a Taylor Ham guy too? Uh, we call it, you know, you got to be Taylor Ham. Um, <laughs> that I don't eat it, but there's a big war in New Jersey. If you're from North Jersey, you call it Taylor Ham. If uh-huh. you're from South Jersey, you call it pork roll. Pork um, roll or what? Chopped or chopper? Yeah, pork roll. Yeah, they chop it and you get a Taylor ham, egg and cheese on a, on a plain bagel. And that's like a go-to staple of the blue collar community, I'd say. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that, yeah. that, uh, that, that was a, a thoroughly um, makes me hungry. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I, I, know. I, want, I want like a red, I want a red sauce, you know? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. But Moving on to our uh, our culture picks. Any preference? Do you want to start Rocco or uh, Akil? I can go. Uh, I started the last one, so one of you guys, if, if you want to, I'll go. Um, okay. I um, I started. I haven't. I just purchased a. Um, my culture pick is a, a book this this week um, that I just picked up. Oh, I've had it for a while, but I just started reading. I haven't. Um, you know, I'm just a few pages in, but it's called the uh, Stoey, the road. And it's about uh, reconstruction, white supremacy and the rise of Jim Crow. And it's by Henry Louis Gates Jr. And uh, um, it basically talks about, you know, um, the reconstruction period um, and how laws and rules have been set up uh, that were set up in place and um, surrounding, you know, um, black people so i'm really interested in in getting into that um can't offer uh, more than that just because i haven't only read the like the back of the book and the first couple pages but uh, i'm looking forward to to to, uh getting into that and sharing it uh with a future podcast about what what that's about and henry lewis gates jr i don't know if you guys he's he's well known um uh, um dealing with issues surrounding race and and um, genetics. He has a few shows. He's on PBS. Uh, he, uh, he taught at Harvard. He has multiple books out. So uh, a well-known author um, and um, scholar. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. That's my piece uh, on culture for the week. Excellent. Yeah, it's good to have that more of these conversations are kind of bubbling up and we can have kind of more of these conversations with, with more facts because it is true that a lot of this stuff wasn't really, I mean, it was, it was kind of glossed over growing up. I don't know how much American history all of us took, but you only hear, you, you hear little things here and there, but only now are these kind of longer academic works, not just coming out in more frequency, but also being read by more people so that we can have these kind of discussions. Absolutely. Which, which are long mm-hmm. overdue and, you know, nice to, nice to kind of fill in those gaps of American history as someone who, you know, was born in America, but is first generation. It's mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's nice to have more more of the story told in that way. There was a lot of digging that I had to do on my own. You know, people's history, of the United States, and all those books like that. But in terms of actually having these things come to the forefront, they're they're passing a lot of ethnic studies. You know, requirements for certain areas and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's good to kind of have that plurality of perspective, be be more of a part of learning. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Um, I'll go next since uh, well, since you started, Rocco. We'll let you we'll let All you right. finish the last segment. Right. Um, my book this week um, 
since you were coming on and I wanted it to be somewhat, somewhat uh, sports related and be a book since we did films last week, uh, breaks of the game by David Halberstam. Mm-hmm. Have you read it at all? It's uh, I have. yeah, it came out in 1982, uh-huh. but it was written about the 1979 Portland trailblazers. Mm-hmm. And I only started reading it because I grew up in LA in the eighties and nineties and I was a Laker fan, but after a while they were winning so much when I was growing up that I started to kind of root for underdogs. And I was born in Portland. That's where my parents ended up when they came to America and the sponsor family was there and they got jobs in Portland. So they moved out of there before I was, you know, could even was conscious because I was, they were in Portland, then went to San Francisco and settled in LA and they both, both Portland and San Francisco, they couldn't handle the weather. But because that little nugget where I'm born in Portland, I kind of gravitated to the Blazers as my second team. And they were kind of an underdog, but they were still making the playoffs. So it was a good team to root for. So as I got more involved kind of rooting for them, I kind of felt like to not be a poser, I had to do some research. And so there weren't, there weren't many books about, you know, the Blazers or just basketball in general for me, besides those like little kid library books about, you know, the biography books, the picture books you'd be growing up. So Breaks of the Game was really the first like kind of quote unquote adult sports book I ever read. Mm-hmm. And it was a really illuminating kind of portrait of not just of that team, but also Halberstam did a great job of wrapping it around kind of where the league was at that time, where they had just gotten a TV deal. And they had just done the ABA NBA merger, you know, like five or six years before that. And so it was, uh, the league was in a moment period of flux and they were trying to build a TV audience. They were just about to sign their big TV deal. And, you know, in, in 79, 80, that was uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird's mm-hmm. rookie year. So that was kind of, the turning point for the NBA in a lot of ways was the magic and Larry gave way to Michael, which gave way to, you know, to now. So that 79 season was before, before that, the glory day, so to speak. So it was kind of, kind of rough. you know, there were a lot of things about it and, and it was still a predominantly, you know, there, it was, it was a game of predominantly black players on TV, trying to be, trying to win over a, a white audience that had never seen that much basketball before. So there was a lot of, cultural racial stuff in the back end there and alverson does a great job kind of mixing it all up and breaking it down and, and it's it's a really great book that's cool I've, I've always heard of the book and i'm a, I'm an nba guy too and and that that's a real interesting time period because like you said it was um you know a sport was kind of a niche sport at the time and i mean they would show games on tape delay um in the late 70s early 80s probably you were all about the same age we probably caught the end of that tape delay NBA games. Um, and, you know, when, when you had that transition from the 70s to the 80s and then Magic and Bird come in and, that, and Jordan, um, then that, that shoots the NBA up until where, where it is today. Yeah. And watching the last dance that was on recently, and mm-hmm. there were a lot of parallels in terms of the breaks of the game, that 79 Blazers team. I mean, there was uh, Maurice Lucas was on that team and he was a really good player, but he was being paid like a quarter of what Bill Walton was, you know, wow. like the, 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 the really, you know, the, the quote unquote stars on the team were making mm-hmm. that reminded me of watching Pippen in the last dance and how he was kind of got had this really tiny contract compared to everyone else. But, you know, you, you played and you're hoping to get paid and you hope it's with that team. But then, you know, and the back end side of sports as a business where I, you know, mm-hmm. as a kid growing up, sports was just like, you know, the game was this and that, and it was all about the game. And then, that was as as an adult book, quote unquote. It was one of those that opened my eyes. I like, you know, sports is a business. These owners are really looking out for that bottom line more than anything. 
where I thought mm-hmm. the championship was the number one, and that was right. kind of an eye opener for in a lot of ways, you know. And Kermit Washington was on that '79 Blazers team, and you remember Kermit Washington was the punch, you know, when he punched uh, yeah. Donovich. So he was paint, he was painted as this like angry, you yeah. know, angry man who was out there punching, killing everybody, and it was just you know. They break they break down his story really well, where it's really just he he had a you know he had a rough upbringing. He he was you know put in situations that people were not you know not everyone went through. So his unique experiences kind of he reacted in a certain way that if you grew up a certain way, it's kind of a natural reaction. But seeing it on a national television screen in the middle of a quote unquote game, you're just like, oh my god, this you know this angry violent man is just terrorizing. But it's it's just the the, the layers and nuance beneath that are kind of where it was an interesting subplot to the book. And one of the things I really do remember, because yeah, I, I couldn't even, there was no YouTube then, so I couldn't look up the punch. Right. So I didn't even know what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. you know, like it took me a while before I could even watch a video of that because it had been scrubbed for most video feeds. You mm-hmm. know? So it, it took a long time before I could even see what they were talking about. But I was reading about it. I was, I was enraptured. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, um, and you know, Dr. Jack Ramsey was the coach, I think, at that time. And yes. Did they who who did they beat in the final? Was that the Sixers? Um, was, yeah, in '77, I think it was the Sixers. So this was the the team two years later. So Bill Walton had gotten injured in '77 and played through the injury, and he they won the championship. But he was never the same after that. So it was so this book kind of picks up on the aftermath of that, right before he went you. to uh, the San Diego Clippers. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so there was a lot. There's a lot of subplots of that book, and the thing with the thing in the book about Jack Ramsey that's so interesting is that he was such a you know he was a, a coach's coach. He knew he knew the X's and O's, but he also was yeah. about rallying the team, and and it, it, it kind of the sense of he had this perfect team in '77, and and he won it all, and he was at the top, and he just thought it would just keep going, and so as it unraveled, you know, as a coach, you're trying to still keep everything together. You're trying to do the best you can with what you got. So as these pieces change, as Walton's foot kind of didn't, didn't come back to what it was, as certain players were, were disgruntled at their playing time and this and that, he had the perfect team, he had the perfect offense for that team, and as it unraveled and him trying to keep those pieces together as best he could, it, it was a pretty good portrayal of, of Dr. Jack in that book too. Cool. I always loved him on, on, on the play-by-play, but that book really yeah. gave him appreciation as a coach. Right. Yeah, I mean – I think that's a good point that we, as you know, people that watch sports or are involved with sports, uh, is something that's really understated: is the ability to actually repeat. You know, you win it once, and you just automatically assume that you're going to be, you, you know, you're up for it again next year. And the fact that all the certain little nuances that you don't see about playing later into the season, um, you know, um, people's health, like. It's and then the following season, you know, you're, you everyone knows once you win it, you have the target on the back, so you're getting pe- everyone's best night in, night out. Um, um, it's just not a. Um, it makes me um, now appreciate more of the people um, mm-hmm. who are able to build dynasties because it's not easy to do. Although I, I, I can't stand the Patriots, and I think Rocco, <laughs> Rocco and I are yeah. both on yeah. are, are on that on the same page with that. But you know, it's something that is is and and then he's plus you throw in like salary cap issues and all the these other uh, things that are factors. It's really um, you know amazing that teams are able to to establish dynasties now. You know. Yeah. As a Niners fan, we went to the Super Bowl and we lost this year. It was uh, kind of heartbreaking, and everyone's like, "Oh, you'll be back next year." I'm like. There no way. There's no, no guarantees in life, you know. Like especially you have to, you have if you to, lose, 
you have to seize the moment, you know, like, yep. and, and, and thinking back to the nineties, those nineties Blazers teams, I think about the Buffalo bills the nineties Blazers teams were like that, where they were yeah. almost there, almost there. Like, you know, eight, they, 89, they lost the Pistons in the finals or no, it was 1990 they lost the Pistons next year. They lost the Lakers in the Western conference finals and the Lakers lost the bulls. And then they lost, and then the Blazers lost the bulls the year after that. So that was three or four years of so close, you know, and, and as a kid, I mean, those ripped my heart out. And that, and that was, that was the kind of thing where now that I'm older looking back and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, like these guys, you get to the finals, you know, like you, you did really good. Yeah. You didn't win the championship, but you, there's nothing to hang your head about. You know, you you have a lot to be proud of. So it, it helps temper it a little bit because I used to have to listen to all this, like, Oh, Drexler, forget it. It's all about Jordan. And yeah, Jordan is the gro- the greatest of all time. Yada, yada. But there's nothing wrong with being Clyde Drexler. The guy got his ring with the Rockets. Mm-hmm. He's still probably one of the top 10 shooting guards of all time. I mean, as a kid, you know, I, you know <laughs> and then later on in life, you realize how meaningless it all is. You know, if you're great, you're just great. You know, like it's, you, you, you measure, it's a measuring stick, but it's not the sole kind of measure of a man, so to speak, you know? So, yeah. 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 And you, you know, you mentioned getting your heart ripped out and I'm, uh, even though I'm from New Jersey, I'm I'm a Utah Jazz fan. So oh. those, those those couple years the Blazers <laughs> made those runs to the finals, they they stepped yeah. over the Jazz, and I'm sitting there in New Jersey. That was when I was in high school. Uh, I think it was two years in a row, early on uh, in the early '90s, where the Jazz lost to the Blazers, um, and then the Jazz finally get through and make it. Yeah, because you had those, those games against yeah. the Rockets too. Those series when the Rockets yeah. went back to back, you went you had two great series with them, and then you got your chance. Yeah, I have cousins yeah. in Utah, so they were they were oh, diehard yeah. Jazz fans. So I I kind of followed them for a while too, and yeah, yeah, I like Malone and Stockton. That was they were great. They had, they had that, great teams. A, yeah, and the West, the whole West was great. I mean, it yeah. was the you know the the tail end of the Lakers dynasty. They were still really good, but the Blazers were good. The Jazz were good. The Sonics were awesome. Um, the Rockets, you know, it was just pretty much everybody but the Clippers, it seemed like. Yeah, and now the Clippers now, – now, yeah. if I have to pick an L.A. team, I root for the Clippers. And it's kind of weird them being good again. I kind of enjoyed when they were more doormats because it was easy to root for them because now yeah. every time you say you're a Clippers fan, you're like, oh, fair weather, yada, yada. Yeah, yada, yeah. Yada. Well, I used to like – I like it when they weren't good because it would be an easy way to get a – could go catch a game, man. Yep. As, I mean, a poor I, kid, as a poor kid in L.A., the top seed for five Yes, bucks, five I know. Bucks. Now they're all good. I'm I'm in the opinion of the Clippers need to move back to San Diego or a different market, yeah. but that's just my thoughts on it. I wouldn't mind San Diego, and I also wouldn't mind even Anaheim. They used to do their preseason games at the Pond, you know, the Honda yeah. Center, hmm. and and I feel like you need to separate the identities. I mean, they have their Inglewood yeah. complex now, which will be at least yeah. You need something different. You can't you can't play in Staples with the Lakers banners hanging overhead and try to build your own identity. No, nope. you know, like it, it's just not gonna happen so yeah it, it's funny you mentioned um the ticket prices and going to clippers games my first i moved out here almost four years ago now and um the first fall i was here i wanted to go to the staples center and the clippers were playing the jazz uh so i got wanted to go see my team and it happened to fall on the same day as the dodgers home world series game so oh. I, I went to the jazz clippers game on the first you know the world series i i had I was sitting about four or five rows behind the net and tickets were like 30 bucks. <laughs> and the place was half empty because it was just nobody, you know, everybody was on the Dodgers there. So anyway, and the, tra- the traffic show. wasn't too bad. Traffic wasn't uh, too bad. Well, the Dodgers game ended early. So oh, okay. I got, to, I watched the end of the Dodgers game in, um, you know, in the, in the Staples center. And then by the time that jazz game was over, everything had cleared out. So, 
it was a staggered starting time, so it was good. And we all know Dodger fans leave early. Show up, show up late, too. leave early. I, I will say, as someone who goes to a lot of Dodger games, because like, you can, they don't let you tailgate, but you can bring food into the stadium, so I really like that as a perk. It's hard yeah. to get in the stadium. Like When the game's going on, the traffic is just nuts. Yeah. And, then, and then if you, if you park, it's still a long walk, but if you don't park there and you walk up to the stadium, it's such a long walk. So yeah. Yeah. I can sympathize a little bit as someone who thought they were going to get there when the game started and ended up at the fourth inning like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but I do like Dodger Stadium because of the fact mm-hmm. you can bring your own food. And they have the all-you-can-eat pavilions, which may be changing yeah. because of COVID. But, yeah, I do like I, – I like all-you-can-eat. <laughs> I, I also like Dodger Stadium, um, just the nostalgic feel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Just when you walk in, it feels like, wow, it reminds me of the uh, old Yankee Stadium in some ways, you know, where these places that um, – these ballparks, there's only a few left, right? There's like Fenway. Mm-hmm. There's uh, uh, the Cubs. Chicago mm-hmm. and LA, those three stadiums yeah. still have that old retro baseball feel. Everything else other than that, it's all been updated, plush, you know, yeah. just a different different type of uh, feel when you enter a baseball stadium, you know. That, that's a great point. And I, I, you know, I'm a baseball history guy. I love that. And I miss the old Yankee Stadium, even as a Mets yeah. fan. Man, I just, that was yeah. historic. Uh, yeah. I'd only been to Fenway once and Wrigley once. And I had never been to Dodger Stadium. So right when I got out of here, out here, that was one of the first things I did. And I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be in this stadium where Sandy Koufax was pitching. Yeah. That was, I always liked Sandy Koufax. It always was a legend to me. I go to the game and freaking I'm sitting on the first base side and Sandy Koufax is sitting right there by the Dodgers dugout. You know, tall guy, looks probably yeah. 10 years younger than he is. You see the gray hair. And um, I'm just sitting there going, wow, man, all this history. Sandy Koufax, Tommy Lasorda sitting right there, all this stuff. It, it was great. Yeah, you do feel the history when you walk into Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. You, feel, you feel some of the, the quirks of an old stadium, but that's – I mean, the, the new stadium experience, is, it's, it's really one of those things that hammers home the sports as a business because you mm-hmm. add yeah. these suites, you add these luxury boxes. You're making good money because you can have a firm – rent out a suite and have like, you know, a little buffet table while you right. watch the game. But most of the people when they're watching on the TVs, you know, like you can't even looking out the window, the, the view experience is not great. So, yeah. I mean, football stadiums have done it too, seeing how the fans are so much farther removed from the field. So, I mean, you don't get that deafening crowd noise, but you have more suites and luxury boxes. So, you know, that's, and seat licenses, but yeah, nothing yeah. like live sports. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rocco, I think you're up. All right. Um, so the book I wanted to talk about today is something called Dream Makers. It's from uh, former Major League pitcher Jim Morris. I just read it uh, about a week or so ago. Um, and the reason I, or the way I came across this book was um, I'm doing some, I'm also work as a baseball writer. Um, so I'm doing some writing during the quarantine. Um, I do a column for a website every week. It's website's called Ball9, B-A-L-L-N-I-N-E.com. Um, and every Friday I have an interview with a former player um, and I publish it, you know, it comes out. It's a, it's a great site for baseball history. Um, anyway, I interviewed one week uh, baseball player, Jim Morris. He was a lefty pitcher and he was the inspiration for the movie, the rookie um, with Dennis, uh, Dennis Quaid, uh, probably from about 2000, 2001. Um, this was the guy, he was a minor league pitcher. He's hurt his arm in the eighties gave it up, and then became um, a high school teacher and baseball coach. 
and he, he had promised his team in like, you know, I forget, late 90s that if they won the district championship, he would go try out for the major leagues. Um, and he ended up winning, or the team ended up winning. It was their first championship. So he went and upheld his bargain. And little did he know, he had a 98-mile-an-hour fastball. So he went to this open tryout as like a 30-something-year-old high school teacher and was a lefty and started throwing 98-mile-an-hour fastballs up there. And a couple months later, he was in the major leagues at like 30, you know, in his mid to late 30s. Um, anyway, he lasted a couple of years, had a lot of pretty good accomplishments. Um, but then the book Dream Makers is – covers the 20 years after major leagues after he left the majors till today. And it's like absolutely fascinating. Um, he had some personal struggles. He had to have, um, he went, he's been through 58 different surgeries. Um, he's um, his back is, I mean, everything, um, you know, and he talked about, he developed um, an alcohol addiction. Um, he luckily never developed opioid addiction, um, but, you know, he ended up in rehab. Um, and one of the most fascinating things that I found was um, he was diagnosed with CTE-induced Parkinson's. Um, mm. And it said three years ago, it got to the point where it was so bad, his mother had to buy him a cane to be able to walk, just to go for a walk around the block. Um, and, you know, anyway, he, it's all in the book, but he ended up recovering from this Parkinson's. Um, miraculous almost like a scientific unexplained miracle type of thing um but this whole book kind of goes through that he's now running lifting jogging doing motivational speaking he's overcome his alcohol addiction um it's a super inspirational book uh, my favorite books are nonfiction. i love reading about people that overcome odds and things like that and um like you you know, i was reading his his book dream makers and you know, there are points where I'm sitting there reading with my mouth open. And to me, those are the best kind of books. And, you know, I put it down and then there's portions of the book about surrounding yourself with the right people and, you know, associating yourself with dream makers instead of dream killers. Um, and I point out like somebody like Akil um, and just, you know, to put this in, in reference. Um, to me, Akil classified in the book would be a dream maker. I can go to Akil and say, hey, Akil, the students in this difficult situation, what can we do to help them out? And it's, um, and it happens a lot with athletics. Um, and, you know, start of each semester, we run into that multiple times with the keel and it's always, all right, let's work together to get this student out there playing and, and make this student happy and, and make him reach his goal. Um, whereas the opposition, if, if a keel was a dream killer, it would be sorry, too bad. That kid didn't do it. Go away. Um, so it's about surrounding yourselves with the people who want to help other people, um, on top of all the other messages in there. It's a really interesting book. I, I really enjoyed it. And it's a great selection in terms of, yeah, not just, and just illustrating how much goes into, to helping students, student athletes, like, you know, you're, you're trying to make them the best on the field and, and the best physical condition, but to build them as better people and better students, the, the, a lot of the work that goes in there you really need a lot of dream makers in their lives. You know, you need their, 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 their teachers, their coaches, mm -hmm. their family. You, you need, you need dream makers all around you to get you to that point where you can perform at that, you know, top 5% in the state, city, county, country, whatever mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's not going to happen on your own. You need a lot of help. 
And that's something that, yeah, a book like this can really not just help you with that and show you, you know, like build influence how you build your department and how you, how you develop that. But also mm-hmm. it sounds like it, it goes a lot into how in the post athletic life where he had mm-hmm. that 10 year break yeah. where he was a teacher and he had to figure that out in between careers. Then he came back and then he left again and had to figure out what to do after, you know, the, the life after sports is tough. And even me with my missing tooth in my twenties, <laughs> I thought, I thought, Oh, I don't need to go to the dentist. I'll never have any problems. And now I hear him 10 years, just 10 years later, I'm not even, I'm, I'm 39, you know? So it's not like I'm like, you know, and I'm sitting here losing teeth because of decisions that I thought I was invincible. And I thought, Oh, physically I, I'll never have any problems. And mm-hmm. these are the kind of things you have to plan for. And that's, and those are the things that were student athletics, not doesn't just help you to be a good, a good person and athlete student in the moment. It builds you as a human being for the rest of your life. If you, if you allow it to kind of, kind of change you, you know, that's, that's a good point. You know, I, I also think too, um, kind of in lines with what you guys are saying is like um, with athletics, it's important to note like when we see athletes compete and we're watching and, and they're entertaining to us that we're only seeing a sliver of that person. And, and we sometimes get caught up in the limelight of people's ability to throw a ball or, you mm-hmm. know, um, or, you know, hit, hit the ball. Um, but we don't understand or we don't see that other size of, of just life of, of what that person has gone to just to get to that level. Um, and, um, and so what we do is we create, I feel that sometimes we create that by making it is the ultimate success. Um, and it, no doubt it's, it takes a a whole lot of people to get to people to that level. But the reality also too, is when the cameras are off and, 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 um, you know, the crowds are gone, how are people really being, um, looked after you know what i mean um there's you know we know historically i mean how many books have we read and heard about professional athletes that are are competing mm-hmm. at the highest level but then in the in the depths uh, of the night they're suffering from substance abuse uh, not mm-hmm. really loving what they're doing um these type of things you know but they're still out there competing and winning but we don't know or we're not privileged to know what is like going on uh, behind the scenes. And for me, um, and I can speak with, with, in regards to Rocco for this is like, I think that's where we find the beauty in it is being able to assist uh, these students and help these students uh, to compete. And in most cases, we know that students compete because they can escape certain realities. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk to some of these athletes that come from uh, just tough situations and, and playing ball or, um, or whatever they're doing is, is actually their sanctity you know, where they're just away from all of that lifestyle, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great too. And that's something that a lot of people don't see that, you know, me and you are privy to a little bit working in athletics. You know, like I said, a lot of people will see the website and see the final scores and things like that, but they don't see a parent, you know, a single parent sitting in the football coach's office in tears, thanking our coaches for getting their son on the right track or, you know, um, an international student, parents. Um, I was on a call with uh, an international parent who, a student, an international student came here, played sports, and then they're going to go on to a four-year school to play sports. And, you know, this parent, these parents were in tears because their their son was realizing their dreams. Um, And that happens over and over and over on every sport, and people just don't see that. Um, you know, they, they see the final score, but there's so many personal stories of success, um, that, that happen. And it's, it's people like you, people like me, people like 
our coaching staff that I really believe make that possible. And when I was reading that Dream Makers book, that's what I was kind of in my head identifying in my department. Oh, this person's a dream maker. This person's one. You know, they sent the book or, you know, let Sandrine, Craig, a couple of our coaches like, hey, this is an awesome book. This is what you guys do. You should read about it. Um, so they read it. They want to share it with their teams. It's, it's been good. Yeah, athletes especially, but in general, all people could benefit from just more mm -hmm. positive voices in people's lives. And, and most of those successful stories you see, they will always, you know, in a memoir or whatever, thank well, if not for this person, if not for this teacher who, who gave me a chance, this person, when everyone else thought I was, was nothing, they, they took a chance on me. It's always that chance, quote unquote, yeah. that is the big difference. And, that, and, and people remember that. I remember, you know, I have memories of certain teachers in certain moments where people could have given up on me and they just kept mm -hmm. going. And, and, you know, they were probably should have given up on me, but I'm glad they did it. You know, like, so, <laughs> so those situations yeah. are, are much appreciated. Yeah. And I think we all have that. We all have times where people gave us chances that maybe we should have had shouldn't have had whatever but those were people that gave us a chance to shine and and we failed. and that was one of my favorite quotes from that book dream makers it was if we are failing we are uh, if we are failing we are learning uh, and we are trying so it kind of um, you know it, it it not encourages you to fail but says if you're failing don't worry you're learning and you're moving forward um, and I think that's really important too. Yeah. It's a, it's a great mantra. Cause I know in uh, like when we do, like I did a lot of 3d printing and like maker stuff when I was working at the library and they were always the philosophy, like it's okay to fail. You just have to fail better next time. If you, 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 <laughs> you, you learn a little, if you learn a little bit and try again and you make an improvement in some way, then it wasn't in vain. You know, the, the worst thing you can do is, is fail the, the same way repeatedly. Then you're, then you're not getting anywhere. But if you fail once mm. and then learn something, fail better next time you will at least have made some improvement and that'll keep you going because there's nothing more like that will just break your heart and make you want to stop doing something than failing the same way over and over and over and over again. So if you can just fail better and feel like you're improving, that'll keep you on the, on that motivated path as well. So. Absolutely. And, and another message I get from that book is if you're, if you're lefty and you can throw fast, you will have a career in baseball. That, that's 100% accurate. The fastest way to get to the show, man. The fastest way to get to the show. Is be lefty, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. But it's cool. You know, he, he recounts um, that whole path in the beginning part of the book. And then he talks about how, how, he, was, how he fell into these deep, dark places in his life and battling the Parkinson's. Um, and then he talks about where he is now and it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people that when you are failing, like you said, um, there aren't people beating you down. There are people encouraging you saying, you know, fail better next time. Um, so again, you're right. We do need a lot more positive voices um, in our lives for sure. And I do think that's something that SBCC and all the, you know, all the folks I've dealt with on campus and around that, that are involved in SBCC in any way, they're really like, they really have the students back. They're, you're mm -hmm. all, everyone here is always looking out for the students' best interests and we're, and we're trying our best to be there for them. So that's, that's something that's always been instilled in me just on all the people I've interacted with in the short time I've been here. And it's, it's good. It's good to be a part of that community for sure. Yeah, I agree. Most people here that I've dealt with are all about the students and you know, we're, we're the dream makers for the students. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent. And um, I was going to make another point about being a lefty pitcher, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, oh yeah, I, I was going to ask about how do y'all feel about the uh, DH going away next year? Is it next year? I think next season the DH goes away, they, as part of the the agreement they signed. Is that is that is that really happening? I th- are they doing it this year? I forget what they ended up deciding on. Um, oh man, if it'd be this year, that'd be rough. I feel like you need, I want at least one more year of. I like the DH. I mean, I like the DH split. I mean, I. I like the different, yeah. I like the yeah. different strategies, and um, it's you know, um, there it's a different brand. It makes it makes the game interested or interesting. Uh, and like you mentioned, a little bit of analytics. I feel like that's making everybody a robot type of thing. Every you know, everything's computer based. It's taking the the heart out of the game, and the DH is one of those little nuances that that makes things interesting. And you know, people argue. You know, do you really want to see a pitcher go up there and bat 080? You know, you know he's going to strike out. And, yeah, I could get that point of view, but it also takes a bit of strategy out of the game. And every time they, they slice into it like that, it, it loses a little bit about the past. Um, so I, I'd like to see it stick around. Um, I don't think it's going to, but, um, you know, it's just another – the game evolves and it's just another point of evolution. Yeah, I mean, I wish they would have taken it away back when Big Poppy was in the. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you have, I mean, you'll have a lot more players hanging on as a DH. They'll be able to just DH for a little while longer, as opposed to you know, like Albert Pujols on my team is basically mm-hmm. a DH at this point. He'll play the he'll play the yeah. outfield maybe you know once or twice a week, but yeah, he's he's a DH. So you'll have, it'll allow guys to prolong their careers. But I do agree in terms of like the baseball record books are so sacred. That yeah. It just you know, like it's going to skew a lot of things. I used to like watching pitchers go up and try to bunt. Or like that mm-hmm. when a pitcher had when there's a guy in third and the pitcher has to try to squeeze him home that was that was tense you know so but uh, yeah I'm I always for me when I think of the DH position it it always makes me think about the possibilities right because mm-hmm. you're like this guy can can mash and um, what how's that going to look like right so you have to pitch to him or you have to pitch around him and then if you pitch around him then who's uh, like who's up next and then i always think about uh big poppy and manny ramirez how that was just like and i'm a yankees fan but that those two man you just didn't want to be facing that that those two guys when when runners are on you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely true and it's um it just takes that dimension out all right well you know that's a good point too though it it does add another dimension because like with the mets um you know, I'm a Mets fan, and Johannes Cespedes, mm-hmm. he wasn't really, you know, he was there. We didn't have any expectations for him this year. If you went back six months, you know, he was recovering from injury, this and that. Mm-hmm. Now with the DH, he's your cleanup hitter. You know, he yeah. doesn't have to run around the outfield, and he can stay healthy. So it's it's just a different, you know, different evolution of the game, and and more guys are going to be able to hang on um, when Mookie Betts is playing out the end of his. Nice long new contract. He might be able to, you know, he'll probably be a DH too. So, um, just the way Pujols is doing now in, in, Los oh. in LA. The Red Sox definitely. The Red Sox will definitely have some regrets about letting letting Mookie go. I'm sure. But yeah. Yeah. An interesting point. I mentioned that, that I do these articles every week uh, with my baseball writing. My um, article next week is supposed to be with a man named Ron Bloomberg. And he was the first ever designated hitter in Major League Baseball history. So oh. um, he's that was 1973. He was on the Yankees. So I've been in contact with him. We've been emailing back and forth, and I want to talk to him and get his thoughts on. Hey, you're the first guy yeah. 
what and the DH looks like it's coming to an end. And what do you think? So, so that'll be interesting if I, I get the chance to talk to him about that. That'll be exciting. Yeah, Edgar yeah. Edgar Martinez, the Hall of Famer, yeah. DH. Mr. Doubles, I remember our team pitching to him. He'd just be doubles off the wall, opposite field all day. <laughs> all day. And that's, that's true. That's a good point, too, because you get guys like Edgar Martinez and Pujols and Ortiz, you know, um, Frank Thomas. They, you know, they wouldn't be the guys they were without the DH position because, you know, they're not the best fielders. Um, they're able to stay on in advanced age and, and – you know, they get to stay healthy because they don't have to run around out of the field. And yeah. they just, you know, sit there and jack some home runs and jog around the bases <laughs> and wait for the next time. Yeah, and then we also know, too, people – I mean, people buy tickets for for the show, right? So yeah. if you got – you can, one, extend people's career because uh, they can DH. Two, that sells tickets because people are like, look, you know, Big Poppy is is – I want to come watch him play or come watch him hit. And uh, I, I, it's, it's kind of interesting that it's, it's going in that direction because to me, it's like, that's how you get fans in seats. You know, people want to see the home run hit, you know? Yeah. without And that's how you get the new generation involved too. The, yeah. You know, that that's been a problem with baseball. Um, the younger generations are gravitating more towards NBA and football. It's faster pace. It's more exciting. Baseball, you know, you're sitting down and watching for three and a half, four hours sometimes, and that generation's not into it. You know, they want to see the home runs. They don't want to see pitchers, you know, and managers figuring out whether they're going to have to pinch hit or a bunt or what are you going to do, you know. So it's a way to get the younger generation involved um, too. Yeah, and the irony is baseball is, is as much of it's thought of as like America's pastime from the past – they were on the forefront of a lot of technological things, you know, MLB TV mm-hmm. and all the online stuff. They were, they were one of the first to do it and do it well. You know, they're doing all this stuff with the fan experience now where you can get your picture in the seat and to do with the crowd mm-hmm. noise. So, so they really do find a way to be kind of tech, tech forward with a lot of things. So they're really kind of staying on the cutting edge. And it's just a matter of, you know, getting, getting more folks kind of, kind of into the, the flow of the game. I actually got into baseball because it was the one sport where I could, while I was doing my homework, watch for a little mm-hmm. while not pay attention for three hours, come back, and the game would still be on. I can get right into the, to the heart of the matter. I mean, yeah. that's what got me into it. I could yeah. it would just be on in the background, and I could just follow it slowly. And that's how I kind of got into the game when I was younger. And Wally Joyner helped too, but, you know. But. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a great – yeah, the 86 season there uh, with Wally Joyner. Uh, it was a great season to be an Angels fan. I mean, they lost in the ALCS oh. in that tough, tough series. Donnie, Donnie Moore. Donnie, Donnie Moore. Moore. Yeah, oh. Yeah, but I mean that those are that's one of the best postseasons in baseball history when you take a look at both league championship series and the World Series. And I'm not just saying that because the Mets won. Uh, you know, all <laughs> yes, the, you all the yeah. yes, you are. Yes, you are. It helps. It helps. It, yes, you are. Every every, <laughs> every series, man, came came down to it was everything was so high pressure and every series was so dramatic in, in the AL and NL and then the World Series. Um, it was just, it was great to see, but, um, yeah, it's, it'll be, it'll be interesting, uh, to see what happens this year. That's for sure. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a good note to sign out on. You can talk about hype up the 86 Mets championship team. There you go. Thank you very much, Rocco, for coming on the show. And, Not uh, that, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, John, my friend, I got excited. But no, thank you to you guys for, for inviting me and talking 
it's um you know we've been doing our best with the shutdown and lockdown and one of the things i miss the most is being able to interact with our students you know and, and my my friends at work so it's always great to be able to you know talk to you guys informally and not on zoom meetings or things like that so <laughs> yeah. um it's it, this was a lot of fun i really appreciate it yeah yeah so i think it's a great it's a great idea that you guys are doing too so you can we'll, get, we'll get back get back to planning the the crazy spring that awaits you so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure and that's that's exactly what i'm going to be doing yeah. and as always we will be student focused and uh the mm -hmm. spcc community will be uh yeah, we'll be there for everyone right. all right thank you so much thank all you right. thanks again, and, uh, until next time all right thanks a lot guys all right thank all right. you bye, bye. all right